The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Hello everybody and welcome to Backstage Gaming, dramatic takes on your favorite games. I'm Chris. And I'm Dylan. And we're here this week to talk to you about villains. Uh, this is an episode we want to do for a while. Fortuitously, uh, I went out last night with some coworkers at my day job. We had like a team outing and I had a handful of drinks and my voices sounded like this all day. So the villain episode features me down in my villainous register <laughs> as... <laughs> Just a happy coincidence, so here yeah. we are. Do I need to do a character voice? This is not a character voice, this is just how I sound. But do I need to do a character voice? If you want to bust out Droopy Dog, <laughs> that joke will make sense to our patrons and no one else. Pa- join, join us on Patreon and listen to our bonus episode and you can This is know. our earliest chill yet. Yeah, there we go. Um, like I said, this week we're going to talk about villains and how villains are constructed and what makes a good villain and we didn't actually come up with any bad villains to talk about but boy howdy there are a few and i'm sure we'll, we'll think of some as I, we're talking uh, i i have an example of a villain with like good objectives but maybe not a great super objective yeah but we'll get there i yeah. guess and let's let's just i'm just gonna pogo stick right on top of what you just said um mm-hmm. What we are not going to be talking about, because we are not game designers, is the, like, actual mechanical side of developing an antagonist in a game. Because this has never been a game design show. This has never been a game design show, but we just, like, we are going to be very much, in this case, approaching this from a character analysis and acting point of view. Uh, If you want to hear people who know more about game design talk about that, uh, Extra Credits did a great I think it was like a two episode part or two part episode series on villain design in games like years ago at this point, but it's a really okay. great, it's a really great video if you want to watch that and like, you know, combine that with this episode and do a whole little deep dive. But to, to jump right in when we're talking about what makes a good villain, it really kind of just comes down to what makes a good character. And I'm saying this is someone who because I sound like this, is frequently cast in villainous to at least not particularly friendly roles. It's the same idea as coming up with a strong main character or a strong uh, supporting character. It all comes down to something that we've talked about before on the show, but it's actually kind of been a minute since we've done a deep dive into this, but Mm -hmm. what Dylan just mentioned, objectives and super objectives and tactics. So, hey, Dylan. Yeah. What's an objective? Well, you see, Chris, an objective is something you want in a given scene. So, let's say, for example, that my objective in this podcast is to educate our listeners. That would be my objective for this podcast. And how will you know? How will I know that my objective has been reached? Yeah. Usually, it's hopefully when they use hashtag BSGpod to tell me what a good job I've done telling them about the podcast. Boy, howdy, we're really good at native advertising. Isn't that something to think about, Nintendo of America? Uh, <laughs> what is... 
The energy for the last two recordings has been very weird, and I thank y'all for coming along with us on that. Um, but exactly what Dylan just said. Like, I, 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 th I think what happened was, like, Will is such a pleasant and chill person that he brought our energy down, and now it's, it's just, just kind of exploding out. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so your objective is what you want in a, any given moment as a character, and a big part of acting is figuring out what those objectives are. The best objectives are clear they're in terms of someone else on stage or on screen uh and you'll know when you got them like that's why I, I threw that thing that turned into a very dumb joke out there i want him to feel sad is not a particularly strong objective i want to make him cry much clearer there is a visual response that is instantly understood yeah by the by both you and by the audience because yes. we're talking about this in terms of things that are meant to be consumed and then on top of that, once you know what your objective is, then your job is to come up with tactics, what you're doing to get that objective. In the case of an actor on stage, if my if my objective in this scene that we're doing right now is I really want, I just want to be annoying enough that Dylan hangs up the call. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Why not would gonna... I do that when I can mute you? <laughs> That's a fair point. And then I'll never know. And then we don't have a podcast. <laughs> Goodbye. Um, but then my, just to, to throw this out there, my tactics could be do a bunch of stupid voices. I'm not going to subject you to that right now, partially because my voice already sounds like this and I have to record auditions and things this weekend, but also because I don't want to just subject you, our good podcast listener, to that. But typically you also want to look for like an escalation in tactics. So if if my goal is to make Dylan leave and I, I start off with like, I'm going to talk in a dumb voice until maybe he decides he's tired of this. Yeah. And then that doesn't work. Maybe I start insulting him. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Like ramp it up. Try something new when you realize that what you're doing isn't working. Dylan brought up a very fun example of this in the form of old school Mario. <laughs> yeah. Like this is a very basic and reductive uh, idea of tactics and objectives. But And I think we've used this example before. We've used but, something um, similar to it, I think. Yeah. You know, what is Mario's objective? Get to the... Pr or what is Mario's super objective? The objective he has uh, that will end the game. His super objective is to rescue Princess Toadstool. How does he accomplish that? Well, he has to go through eight worlds. Those are his objectives. Each world is its own objective. What is keeping him from just going from one world to the next? Those are enemies. Those are obstacles. In this case, very literal obstacles put in front of him by King Koopa. I don't know why I'm using the original... 8-bit Super Mario names for Peach and Bowser, but shut up. I mean, we, we're, we, I said 8-bit Mario, and we're, we're diving in. We're doing it. We're holistic. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm dedicated to my craft. <laughs> uh, but anyway, these obstacles are set out by King Koopa slash Bowser slash whoever made the level in Mario Maker. Fuck those guys. And, you know, they are there to keep Mario from reaching his objectives, what Bowser's super objective is, is to stop Mario. It is, well, actually, it's to keep Princess Peach under his custody. Yeah. And to do that, he needs to prevent Mario from uh, get, going from world to world. Yeah. So and he is acting in, like, direct opposition to Mario. Yeah. And that's actually a really good example to get to something that I don't think we've talked about uh, on the podcast before. There's sort of this, like, when when you're on stage... If and performing opposite somebody else, there's kind of like a a puzzle piece aspect to 
the scene analysis where like if we're in a scene together and I want to make you give me money and you want to make me leave just to like throw some objectives out there. Mm-hmm. All of my tactics to get what I want turn into obstacles for you that cause you to change tactics, and that turns into an obstacle for me that causes me to change tactics. Yeah. And so in a way, a video game level, if if you as the player are an actor with an objective, in a, like to use Mario as an example, you as the player, your objective is you want to get to the end of the level, you want to get to the flag. And all of the obstacles that are coming at you, all of Bowser's tactics, his different minions and obstacles cause you to have to change up what you're doing again we're being really reductive here uh (laughs) but that's sort of what it comes down to and so the when we were coming up with the idea for this episode we decided that what might be fun is to look at the character of ganondorf as he has appeared throughout the legend of zelda series and look at the way that they have handled him and the different ways that they have characterized him in the different games and what impact those have had on his effectiveness and his, like, how good of a villain he is in any given game. Maybe we'll even talk a little bit about this whole rehydrated Ganondorf thing, if we have the time. <laughs> but to start with, Dylan, you've, you've been doing some close playing of Ocarina of Time recently. Yes. What do you think, if you had to give Ganon, like, off the top of your head, a super objective for that game, what is it? Take over Hyrule on... Or, okay, actually... Ganondorf's super objective in The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time is that he wants all of Hyrule to subject to him. He, he right. wants their obedience. Okay, I like that. Yeah, the the other thing about super objectives, like, super objectives are much harder to pin down than scene yeah. objectives because super, like, a scene objective has to be actionable. It has to be something you can get and it has to be something the audience can see that you have gotten. Mario falling into a bottomless pit is a pretty clear capstone to that objective. The super objective is allowed to be a little bit more vague. It can yeah. be more in the vein of, like, what is the abstract thing? What is the, like, personal drive? I, I guess I guess what I should say is that is his super objective is that he wants to rule Hyrule. His final objective that will be the key to him getting that super objective is when Complete all of obedience. the peoples... Yeah, when all of the peoples of Hyrule bow to him. Or yeah. are wiped off the face of the map. Yeah, they're just, just gone. Just yeah. It's okay if Hyrule's empty, if it's mine. Ganondorf in Ocarina of Time. We're first introduced to him by Princess Zelda when you sneak into, ca- into Castle Town and into Hyrule Castle. And That's true. We, we I guess, are, okay, we are yeah, there is the face. There is the, the dream sequence at the beginning. Uh, not what I was referring to. <laughs> what am... I, it's all fresh in my head, so the first time we are actually, like, we are referred to Ganondorf, we don't have a name or a face quite yet, you know, outside of the dream sequence, but the Deku tree says, I am dying because I was poisoned by this man. For those of you who haven't played Ocarina of Time, the first level you go inside a living, a living talking tree to try and save him. It's, it's the god of your people. Um, Yeah. You're, you, you belong to a, a race of forest sprites. Yeah. Totally not elves. Um, <laughs> and you kill the monster, but the, it's too late and the tree dies. And he tells you that it's because, like, this man from the desert, I think is how they refer to him. Yes. Uh, has poisoned him. And then you make your way to Castletown. You find Princess Zelda. And she, like, pulls you to the window and is like, look at this creepy dude. Um, this man from the desert. Yeah. <laughs> A lot of Ganondorf's characterization that we get early on in the game, or really 
for the I don't know that Ganondorf really talks very uh, much Ganondorf in Ocarina doesn't of Time. Really, Ganondorf probably has like three scenes where he talks. Yeah, um, we we get very little actually from him. Yeah, that's really weird to think about. <laughs> yeah, but what we do get, and what's very effective about Ganondorf in Ocarina of Time, is he is the reason for the problems at everywhere you go. Yes. Like, he poisons the Great Deku Tree at the very beginning to kick off your whole adventure. Yeah. He, he poisons um, the Great Deku Tree. When the Garans refuse to submit to him, he cuts off their food source. Yep. And then when the... Uh, Gorons are rock people. I don't think that's important, but... No. Uh, Another the, of the races of Hyrule. Yeah. Uh, when the aquatic Zora tribe does also refuses to submit to him, he places a, cor- a curse on their, their deity. Yep. And this causes him to accidentally swallow the princess whole. Yep. He follows suit with the, with the next six or so dungeons. Yep. And what's great about this is this is a great example of Ganondorf having very clear tactics like he is we are seeing the kind of character he is through what he is willing to do he is not above killing off like basically gods of the different people that are opposing him in order to send a message and that tells you a lot about the kind of villain you're dealing with I don't think we need to go into like what Link's objective or super no. objective is but now that is interesting that is an interesting thing for me to consider and think about, so I'm going to put that in my back pocket. Yeah, there you <laughs> go. That's, that gets to another another sort of point of interest and, like, the big difference between a villain and a protagonist, a protagonist and an antagonist in media. For the protagonist, you always know kind of what they're doing. You spend the most time with them. In order for their story to be compelling, you need to know what they want and you need to know why they want it and you need to be sort of with them for every step along the way. As is the case with Ganondorf, because you, you're you told early on that, like, he's kind of shady and he's trying to, like, gather power, but you don't really know, like, why. All you have to go on is what he's willing to do. Villains need to have clear objectives. They need to have something that they're working towards and the tactics that they're going, do, they're going through to do them. But it's less important that the audience know what that final end goal is for the entire time. As long as they understand that there is danger and, like, this is a person to watch out for and they are interfering with what the protagonist wants. A good example of this that Dylan brought up is... Or, did you bring it up or did I bring it up? One of us brought it up. It doesn't matter. Um, (laughs) But in another of our favorite games that we're totally not being paid by, which, like, I don't know why I said it that way. We're not. (laughs) We just like this game. (laughs) Iconoclast, which we've talked about many times, there is a character named Agent Black. And Agent Black is one of the main antagonistic figures that you run into. She's like the first... Yeah, she is the first... She's the first NPC, I think, you talk to in that game. And she appears throughout the story to get in your way and try to stop what you're doing. And you don't really know why beyond the fact that she is an agent of the government who is the main force that you're working against. That's kind of all they give you. But as the game goes on, they slowly show you more and more of Agent Black's backstory, and she slowly opens up more and more in the interaction she has with people, and you come to understand why it is that she's doing what she's doing and why it is that she cares about what it is she's doing. I don't want to go too in the weeds, because 
this Go is still play. a game that's fairly new that you it's, should all play. It's fairly new and buy it. It's fucking great. But you you come to understand why it is that she cares and you you learn where she comes from and why she's working for the government and it culminates in this really phenomenal monologue that she delivers right before your final boss fight with her in which she like basically declares that like this is entirely personal for her and this is everything she's been doing even though she's been following orders it's because like it's all she has and it's yeah so good and it's such a good payoff so chris to put it in simple terms what is black's super objective oh <laughs> that's honestly tough I, I, would, I think I have a read. Yeah, what do it, you think? I, I think Black's super objective is to justify her purpose. Because unlike Robin, who kind of chooses to be a mechanic because that's what she wants to do. She wants to help people um, in this way. Black is assigned the job that she has. Yeah. Because she has been told that it is by divine credence or not credence i don't know what the fuck i'm the word i'm trying to find it is divinely sanctioned that yes it is divinely sanctioned that she should be doing the job that she is and it is also by divine sanction that she has the powers she does and it is also by divine sanction that she is constantly tormented with like a pounding migraine that will never go away yep and so I really like that read. And so everything she's doing is trying to live up to this divine plan in the hopes that that will, in a sense, kind of free her. Like, not yeah. necessarily from the job, but from the unpleasantness and from the the migraine and all of the, like, fears that things are going wrong. I really yeah. like that read. And the nice thing is, when you get to that payoff, it puts everything that's come before in context. Yeah. When you're just running into Black in those, like, one-off moments where she shows up to make things worse, they're effective scenes because at this point she is really as much as anyone else. And the rogues gallery of Iconoclast is kind of a big ensemble cast. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to pin down, like, at least on a first playthrough, who the main antagonist is. But Black is the closest thing to one. At this, throughout most of the game, because she's your first point of contact and she's constantly showing back up. And so then when you finally find out why, it just like fills in a lot of meaning to all of those earlier interactions in a really cool way. And that's something very powerful that you can do with a well written villain and a well portrayed villain. I think that lean, leans kind of nicely into Wind Waker in a way. Oh, okay, nice. Um, Going back to Zelda and yeah. Ganondorf. Diving back to Zelda. So Wind Waker is my personal favorite rendition of Ganondorf. Um, okay, yeah, I would I would agree with that. Legend of Zelda Wind Waker, the, the Hyrule of this game is gone. Rather than Hyrule, it takes place on the Great Sea, and so you're sailing between islands throughout the entire game. And then the big... Tw I'm, I'm not going to worry too much about spoiling Wind Waker. This game came out in 2002? 2002 or three, I think. The big twist at the halfway point after you sail around to a bunch of islands collecting these like divine orbs at the behest of your talking boat, the King of Red Lions, you discover that the islands you've been sailing around are the tops of Hyrule's mountains, and the entire kingdom of Hyrule is submerged under the Great Sea. And why is that? I don't know. It's to I... stop Ganondorf from ruling. 
but I, I wanted to make it clear for the audience. And throughout this, you're also... Okay, I'm honestly... Now that I'm talking about this out loud, the degree to which the entire plot of Wind Waker revolves around Ganondorf, even, like, from the word go, is mm-hmm. so good. <laughs> so, Wind Waker begins. You are a kid on a little island. It's called Outset Island because it's way out of the edge of nowhere. And you're gearing up for an... for. Like your twelfth birthday. It's your twelfth birthday. Twelfth yeah. birthday, uh, which is a uh, important birthday because you put on the clothes that match the uh, mythical clothing worn by the hero of legend. It's a green tunic because you're Link, and you're gonna have a ceremony. And then what happens? But a big fuck off bird carrying an unconscious girl shows up, chased by a pirate ship, and you being a a bold twelve year old, uh, rush Reed off to stupid. help. Yeah. I love Wind Waker Link. He's such Waker a Link fucking bullheaded I kid. I love it. You rush off to help this young girl. You do, but then in the aftermath, the big fuck-off bird comes back and steals away your sister. You come to find out that she has been stolen by this mysterious figure in a fortress on the other end of the ocean that you have to go and rescue her from. And then you find out that that figure is Ganondorf, and he's been kidnapping blonde-haired girls from around the ocean like Tetra, the pirate girl that you saved, and like your sister, and like a couple of other girls, because he's searching for Zelda so that he can get her part of the Triforce, which is the mystical MacGuffin of the Zelda franchise. Yep. And, like, everything from the inciting incident of the story of the bird showing up to the twist at the midpoint where you realize that Tetra is Zelda and you figure out that, like, oh, this is... We need to do something about this, and you set off on the uh, the quest to get the Triforce all the way up to the final confrontation with Ganondorf, it's all so wrapped up in him and his machinations being every sing- like behind every single plot point that you run into. God. In uh, Ocarina of Time, it is about Ganondorf, but I think it is also as much about establishing who Link is and what he's about. Yeah. Wind Waker is more about Ganondorf, I think. It's about, like, Wind Waker is about Link reacting to Ganondorf. Whether or not Link, like, everything about Link's backstory and, his, like, who he might may or may not be is secondary to the fact that he needs to stop Ganondorf because Ganondorf is trying to... He's trying to, uh... He's trying to get a take, too, on ruling the world. Yeah. Ocarina of Time is actually really interesting in... Or, not Wind Waker is really interesting because, like, Ocarina of Time, Link is very much kind of, like, it's kind of a chosen one narrative. Yeah. Like, Link is the kid who's not really a Kokiri, not really one of these forest sprites, but grows up among them, and then he, like, he's the one who has to do all of this stuff and go on this quest. Mm -hmm. Wind Waker Link is kind of just a kid from an island. You know, he is the reincarnation of the Chosen One, but, like, the game never confirms that. Yeah. The game is actually, the game actually has more uh, deities doubt that he is who he actually is. Yeah, like, then. Ganon is, like, Ganondorf is Ganondorf is Ganondorf. Tetra turns out to be the reincarnation of Princess Zelda. Link Even has the Triforce the of Courage. But he has to earn it. Yeah, like, he's not divine, like, at the very least, they never explicitly state any kind of, like, actual, like, yes, this is the reincarnation of Link. He could just be a kid who proves himself worthy of the Triforce of Courage, which is also a really cool thing about Wind Waker. 
Uh, and the game, sorry, I know, I know we're spending a lot of time on Wind Waker, but something cool I just realized was, like, the game even implies that, like, the entire reason why things are, well, they're normal by the time of Wind Waker, but, like, the reason why a calamity happened that flooded Hyrule in the first place is because a previous incarnation of Link was not there to do the job he needed to do. Yup, but this Link is, even if he is just a kid from an island. But to bring it back to Ganondorf, that moment of payoff, like I was talking about with discovering why Agent Black cares about things she cares about and does the things she does, you get a really clear moment of that with Ganondorf in Wind Waker. There's this whole moment as he is about to re- reunite the Triforce and make his wish to bring the oceans away and bring Hyrule back out of the sea so that he can rule it. He has this whole monologue about, like, he grew up in the Gerudo Desert where the wind was killing, like, would kill you, but in Hyrule the wind was pleasant, and he has this great line of, I coveted that wind. And it's, it's one of my favorites. <laughs> it's a great line. It's a really good monologue. It's also all bullshit. <laughs> like... It's what, it's a great case of Ganondorf weaving this tale and, like, he's telling you he's why he's doing... sanitizing his own backstory. Exactly. He's telling you why he's doing the things he does, but in language that hides, perhaps even from him, the real reasons and the real, like, lengths to which he is willing to go. And then there is this moment where he's about to, like, touch the Triforce and make his wish, and he's beaten to the punch by... The King of Hyrule, King of Red Lions, your boat, who turns out to be the King of Hyrule. <laughs> because, sure. Um, Makes sense in context. Just yeah. roll with us. And the king wishes that Hyrule will be sealed away forever. And Ganondorf has this moment of like, well, okay, I guess I lost. And then he starts laughing, and then he turns around, and he has this line of like, what future could you have as he advances on these 12-year-old kids with two big fucking scimitars to kill you? And it's this great moment of, like, he's building himself up as... The game lets you almost see him as a sympathetic villain. Yeah. Almost. Like, he's, fact, he's it got... it is a tactic. Yep. He's got all of this reasoning for why he's doing what he does and why it's worth it. And then when, you, when he fails, he does not get his objective. He has a recognition. He has a reversal. And you see what he really is, and he's reduced to just, like, well, I guess I'm going to get my final revenge right here before we all drown. <laughs> and it's so good. God, I love Wind Waker. I want to replay yeah. that game so fucking bad. Yeah. Put it out on the Switch, Nintendo, you cowards. The thing that makes Wind Waker, or Wind Waker Ganondorf, so interesting to me is that, like, his super objective isn't so much I want all of the world to submit to me. It's more like his super objective is I want a second chance because I am filled with regret over the past. And he wants a second chance to do the same fucking awful shit yeah (laughs) but it's very much a like redemptive isn't the right word but like i do feel like that he has this i do feel like he dwells on like i could have done this differently or i could have done this differently yeah but the bottom line is still i want to rule the world because i feel like i deserve it i deserve it i'm powerful enough to ganondorf has the triforce of power oh Oh, (laughs) what do you say yeah yeah Yeah. playbill yeah, Playbill? Yeah, Playbill. Playbill. Well, Playbill. <laughs> yeah, Playbill. Playbill. Right, let's, let's fucking... Yeah. 
Welcome to the Playbill. This is the part of the episode where we take a minute to talk about what we've got going on, what you should be on the lookout for, and uh, to plug some some other projects and some friends' projects. So here we are. Dylan, I'm really yes. excited because a few days from now, or when you're listening to this audience yesterday, uh, we are <laughs> going to be doing some recording for your other podcast, uh, what should I be? What should I be looking forward to? What am I? What have I gotten myself into in agreeing to be a guest on your other podcast? Well, uh, Chris, I have one question for you. Mm-hmm. Do you like mecha anime? Oh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's the noise I'll be making too when we watch Gunbuster <laughs> on. Dude, you remember Macross? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Christ. No, that's Neon Genesis Evangelion. Anyway, uh, dude, you remember Macross is a show where I talk to my friend and yours, actual doujinshi character, too. Worst Twitter thread of my life. Yep, mm-hmm. You will never escape it. <laughs> um, and anyway, so we were watching uh, Super Dimension Null Fortress Macross, which is an old... Uh, early 80s mecha anime and we we kind of break it down and examine it but we finished super dimensional uh fortress macross so now we are going to kind of take a break from that franchise we'll be coming back to it later but right now we're gonna chill with our good friend chris wilson hi that's, that's me that's that guy over there um and we're going to be watching uh gunbuster another famous mecha anime from the uh from the 80s it's a really good show. Uh, Coop introduced it to me in high school, and I introduced it to Dylan a couple years ago when we were living together here in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And it's fucking wild and really good, and I'm so excited to. to it's chat. gonna be fun to just gush about it. Uh, oh, it's and, so good. Uh, so usually on uh, Dude, do you remember Macross? By the way, that is D U D E. You remember Macross? M A C R O S S. We we usually we like to talk about like or we like to hypothesize about like the possible cultural influences that inform the story beats and we're, we're I I don't know how much we're gonna do with that with Gunbuster because Gunbuster's just like a fun time but we'll, it's a very different we'll sort of show it, yeah but well you know we'll see it's a it's a fun lighthearted Top Gun esque uh show so. It's. I'm excited to be on it with you guys. It'll be fun. So be on the lookout for that uh, coming up in the, sometime in the next few weeks. Dude, you remember Macross is on anchor.fm slash dude. That is, once again, D-U-D-E. You remember. Uh, we are also on Spotify, Google Play, and Apple Podcasts. Also, be on the lookout for uh, the Unexplored Places, an actual play podcast run by our friend Christine. They have been doing this show for like a little over two years now at this point, I think. It's an actual play podcast that used to be in the Monster of the Week game system. Uh, they just finished up their first season, which was running in that system, and now we're gearing up for season two, which is going to be in an entirely new game system. I still don't know if we're allowed to say which one it is. Um, yeah. But Dylan and I are both going to be involved. It's going to be a ton of fun. We already recorded the episode zero where we made all of our characters, and I've never been more excited about a group of uh, characters in an RPG in my life. And we've also been doing some stuff for their uh, Patreon. They've got a couple different, like, Patreon-exclusive campaigns and one-off uh, collections. And we've been doing stuff for their between-season episodes. And we, we're we becoming involved with them uh, in a way that I've been having an absolute blast with. So you should check them out. They're on Twitter at UnexploredCast or at UnexploredCast.Libsyn.com. 
You should also be listening to a little show called Unwell, a Midwestern Gothic mystery. It is one of the coolest audio dramas being produced right now. Uh, like every episode I listen to, it's like, oh, they're doing such cool things audio editing wise and sound engineering wise and like soundscape wise and they're composing original music for this thing and it's it's wild. But it also features my vocal talents in... I have, like, one background line in episode 11, which was released, when you're listening to this, last week. And I have a scene in episode 12, which should be coming out, as you listen to this, about a week or two from now. That I got to act in a scene that serves sort of the coda for their first season. And it was a ton of fun to record, and I'm so excited that it's finally coming out. I, re- I God, that recording session was, like more than a year ago at this point, so it's really cool that this thing is finally happening. You should totally check them out. They are on Twitter, at UnwellPodcast, and you can also find them wherever you get your podcasts. That's all I have plug-wise, so now we just need to talk about our Patreon. We have a Patreon. It's patreon.com slash bsgpod. That Patreon is the reason that we are able to produce this show and not lose any money doing it. Um, At this point, we have our lovely patrons donating enough money every month to cover our hosting fees and our web domain and all of that good stuff, which is incredible. And like, but yeah, thank you guys so much for that. That support means the world to us. And we have several different Patreon rewards. If you're not a patron, but are interested in helping us out, you would get access to our uh, discord server where people hang out and talk about what they're playing. And there's a, a channel for episode suggestions that we take into consideration. We just, this past week recorded our bonus episode for patrons only that we were doing as a thank you for reaching that milestone of uh, hitting our like our expenses in donations. That'll actually have, have gone up for our patrons a couple days ago when you were able to hear this episode. We talked about The Three Unities, which is a very nerdy theater topic, but it was a lot of fun and had the weirdest energy of any episode we've ever recorded. Yeah, it was very chaotic. But I really enjoyed it. And yeah, if you like what we do, if you like our show and you like the idea of supporting a couple of independent artists making a weird thing, check out the Patreon Donate however much you are comfortable with and however much you are you you know want to for the rewards that they unlock. Uh, every dollar helps, and the more that we get, the more we'll be able to put into upping the production value and making things better for you, audio quality-wise or content-wise, or being able to make more shows or more episodes. Or it, It's all going back into running the show and making the show as good as it can possibly be. So, once again, that's patreon.com slash bsgpod. Consider taking a look and seeing if there's anything you want to throw in there yeah so uh rehydrate again in <laughs> yeah i really just want him <laughs> biblically well okay like actually i, I do want to kind of talk about like yeah the, the desire for like a, a re a ganondorf that is redeemed and- ganondorf the redeemed yeah for for y'all y'all out there on the internet who don't know what the fuck we're talking about I feel like we talked about it briefly before, but just as a refresher, there was a trailer, a teaser trailer for the sequel to Breath of the Wild that they have put out there. And a major component of this was a shriveled ancient corpse with like wibbledy wobbledy magic coming out of it that at the end of the trailer turns and its eyes light up and it looks into the camera and it's very ooky spooky. The corpse was visually flavored to very much resemble the Gerudo people. He's got, it's got the same, like, 
gold jewelry and sort of clothing design as the Gerudo women in Breath of the Wild. Ganondorf is a Gerudo. It's also got long red hair. Ganondorf has red hair. So the the general consensus is that this this corpse is Ganondorf. Yeah. That's cool. The internet then immediately was like, but what if we poured water on him and then he could fuck? Enter hydrated, sorry, rehydrated Ganondorf. Which is just like big hunky Gerudo man palling around with Link and Zelda. Because he's a changed man or he's a reincarnation. We just don't know. Yeah. And as far as like goofy fan art things on the internet goes, I'm honestly really here for it. Like, there's been some really fun comics that people have done featuring rehydrated Ganondorf. I love these uh, hijinks and shenanigans. They are all very fun. Yes. The cons- and, like, the idea of a redemptive arc for Ganondorf is interesting, because given that Zelda as a franchise is very, very bought into this sort of, like, again- reincarnation narratives and like chosen figures that repeat throughout history kind of narrative Mm -hmm. it could be really interesting to tell a story about a Ganondorf who like realizes that that is the part he has to play and is trying his fucking hardest not to um you actually want to know a case of this done in another franchise hit me uh there is rehydrated Dracula from Castlevania (laughs) okay yeah that's um uh, Soma Cruz, the main character yes. of uh, Castlevania Aria of Sorrow Which I've and been, Dawn I've, of Sorrow. I've been playing Aria of Sorrow a little bit recently, and it's oh, really yeah. fucking fun. Aria of Sorrow is, the the premise of it is like, this is like 36 years after the final fight between uh, the Belmont clan and Dracula. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, watch our Castlevania episode that I think we have. Yeah, um, it was a fairly early one, I think. Uh, or watch the Castlevania Netflix series, honestly. It's really good. <laughs> um, but it, it ends in 1999, and they find a way to seal Dracula and his castle, which is the source of his power. They are able to seal it away in, in like, a rift between dimensions. I think, in lore, it is in a solar eclipse. Don't ask how that works. And so Dracula dies. Like, he has no way of coming back to life, so he actually dies and is reincarnated as this uh, Japanese boy named Soma Cruz. This is his chance at a redemption, not because uh, Dracula is consciously reincarnated himself, but more so that Soma Cruz is a new person with a fresh slate who just happens to have all of Dracula's powers, and should he ever come return to Dracula's castle, he will be tempted to follow the same path that Dracula took. Yep. But, you know, that's cool. And that's that's a digression. But I, I just kind of wanted to point that out because I love it. I love games with, like, that kind of narrative that do that kind of thing. Yeah. And I think that that would be a really interesting way for them to play around with the idea of, like, a Ganondorf who kind of, like, realizes what's going on mm-hmm. and is trying really hard not to play the part that he has to play. However, I don't know that there is a particularly satisfying way to tell that story that doesn't end in him, like, doing it anyway. And having kind of, like, a tragic turn at the end. Because in order for that kind of story to have the emotional payoff it needs, there at least needs to be... it, It all comes down to kind of the language I've been using. Like, there needs to be this kind of constant struggle. Like... If it's just a matter of Ganondorf is like, oh, no, 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 I'm not that Ganondorf. No, that, 
you're thinking of my father. Like, that's that's nothing. There's no drama there. There's no narrative tension if it's just like, oh, and he, like, this time you have a Ganondorf and he's a friend. Like, okay, fine. But then why is he Ganondorf, you know? And I think I think this is the biggest thing. Ganondorf, or at least the Ganondorf that we have known since Ocarina of Time, needs to die. Yes. Why do you say that, Dylan? Because the Ganondorf, as he exists in Ocarina of Time, is a static character. He has objectives and he follows them, but he is kind of doomed to repeat the same stuff over and over again, because that's the hole that Nintendo has written themselves into. If Ganondorf were to die and then be reincarnated in this reincarnated Ganondorf is chill, that's cool. But the reason why Ganondorf as he is cannot work is because of Skyward Sword. Uh, and I, I wanted to find a different way to transition into this that doesn't sound so condemning of Skyward Sword, because I don't think it's a bad game. I will bash it. <laughs> but I don't think it's a bad game. But the biggest problem with Skyward Sword is that rather than uh, Ganondorf, uh, the ultimate evil in Skyward Sword is this kind of dark god named Demise. And he is brought back, as you do. Um, and Link and Zelda fight him, as they do. And Demise, with his dying breath, is like... Or Demise, right before his demise, you could say. <laughs> <laughs> We're so droll. <laughs> uh, he basically puts a curse on Link and Zelda and says, like, If you are ever to be reincarnated, I shall have an incantation of my will. Be there. That so basically, he creates Ganondorf. Ganondorf is just there to fuck with Link and Zelda throughout the centuries. Which is the biggest... Just like, hey, interesting renditions of this character we've done before. Guess what? You aren't anymore. Interesting. <laughs> interesting. <laughs> like, they still are. Because I think that that whole plot point is dumb and I choose to ignore it. <laughs> I just kind of rub my temples and eventually, after so long, Skyward Sword begins to fade. <laughs> <laughs> there are things I like about Skyward Sword. I just hate Demise. Yeah, and like, the reason that that is such a problem is it removes any actual agency from Ganondorf. It takes it from he's doing this because he's a person with objectives and goals to even if that's still true, it's only true because he exists and by existing he has to be in opposition to these two other characters. And that's yeah. not an interesting villain. <laughs> anyway, that... I, I that, think that's all we have to say on Ganondorf. Yeah, that was that was our way of like sort of dismounting the Ganondorf horse. And now Dylan has a couple of other examples of some, uh, some interesting villains that we can talk I, about to close out the episode. I have a couple of guys who are up to no good. Just started making trouble in your neighborhood? I got in repeated fights. Because <laughs> like that's the in, point. I got in so many fucking fights with these guys. You don't even understand. Because <laughs> it's a game, get it? I don't really have a neat segue, so I'm just going to spit out a name, and I'm going between the two of them, and I'm going to go with Liquid Snake. So Liquid Snake is from the Metal Gear Solid series. Haha, <laughs> Liquid and Solid. <laughs> the more I'm thinking about Liquid, the more interesting I think he is. We were talking about this before the episode on if I should pick him or another villain from the series. The only reason Snake answers the call is because he is made aware of Liquid's existence, which I think is interesting. That is cool. I was not aware of that. 
it's it's in like the briefing like so in Metal Gear Solid there's a menu where uh you can either start a new game or you can go to a briefing which is actually like where the story really starts but like it's skipped because it's a lot of exposition and doesn't really drop you into the game mm-hmm. I wish the later Metal Gear games did that <laughs> oh, I have to go into the backstories now um <laughs> so yeah in okay so in Metal Gear Solid um by the start of Metal Gear Solid it is established Oh, fuck. (laughs) (laughs) I just realized, like, the wall of, like, retcons and later revealed details that I just stumbled into. (laughs) I believe in you. All you need to know about the story of Metal Gear Solid for this conversation is that before the start of Metal Gear Solid, Solid Snake, the game's main character, the information that he is aware of is that right before killing the villain of the previous game, Big Boss, Big Boss tells Solid Snake... I <laughs> the names it's just the names yep. uh, Big Boss tells Snake that he is his father in a very Darth Vader reveal that doesn't actually happen in that game but whatever Hideo Kojima tells us that it happens so I'm really not helping myself right now <laughs> I should just never talk about Metal Gear ever it's on a podcast a, it's a real rabbit hole <laughs> it's it's like not hard to like it's not hard to experience the story, but like when you're explaining it to people who don't know what a foxhound is. So, to make this short, Snake uh has uh is still recovering from a startling realization in which the villain of the previous game says, "I am your father." Said villain is now dead. Snake learns of the existence of a liquid snake. Um someone who joined the organization that he worked for after uh, Solid Snake left, and the st- he is now leading an insurrection. Uh, so Snake agrees to take this job. So now let's focus on Liquid Snake. Oh my god. <laughs> Liquid hey, you know how you Snake, wanted to talk about Virgil? Virgil's so much easier. I don't think we're going to have time to talk about Virgil. <laughs> I can get through this. Just give me Liquid Snake and Solid Snake. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> Liquid Snake and Solid Snake are both actually clones of Big Boss. They were developed for a super soldier project. Solid Snake gets all of Big Boss's dominant genes, while Liquid gets all of Big Boss's recessive ones. Because that's Uh, how cloning works. I mean, yeah. Basically, they, they are two different experiments. Like, Solid Snake has all of the genes that are expressed in Big Boss's data uh, gene coding or whatever you want to call it uh liquid is a experiment that has all of his uh recessive genes that might not have been pronounced so because of this liquid believes himself to be the flawed one and so his super objective is to prove to himself that he is the perfect copy of big boss by following out his will and doing the things that big boss was trying to accomplish in the previous game and he he does this by and the reason why I wanted to bring up this game and go through the suffering of trying to describe the story in <laughs> two minutes um, is because there's this whole idea of character agency in Metal Gear and Snake being the the player character who is constantly lied to by his superiors. Like, he has very little agency. Yeah. His job is to go in, do the job, kill who he needs to kill, rescue who he needs to rescue, leave, and don't ask questions. Liquid Snake, on the other hand, he want he basically wants to form his own micronation, and so a lot of the fun interplay between these two characters is that Liquid Snake 
is able to exert his control over the situation in ways that the player is not immediately aware of. Uh, Liquid Snake disguises himself as one of Snake's commanding officers. He uh, he basically baits and leads Snake through uh, entire sections of the game to directly play into his own plans. Uh, near the end of the game, Liquid Snake has a huge fuck you monologue to Snake where he talks about how uh, Snake doesn't live for any higher purpose. He is just a he is a weapon. He is a tool for the government. Um, and so now that I've gotten all that huge exposition exposition out of the way, I just want to briefly touch upon Liquid Snake because I think that is cool. <laughs> yeah, no, that is very cool. And like the Metal Gear Solid games, if they have thesis statements, a lot of their thesis statements come down to being about agency. Yeah. And a lot of that is reflected through the mechanics of the game and what the games will allow you as a player to do. So the fact that so much of that is also there and present in Liquid's motivations and objectives and tactics is a really nice little bit of like tying him into the greater themes of the story in a really cool way. Thank you for of course putting a nice bow on that because like I fried myself. Yeah, I was gonna say I could, to... I could tell that you just like your brain is slightly leaking out of your ear with the effort of having to summarize Metal Gear. Like Metal Gear Solid as a franchise is easy to understand. Explaining Metal Gear Solid to someone who has never even looked at a single screenshot of Metal Gear Solid <laughs> is incredibly difficult. Yep, way harder than I thought it would be thankfully i can turn my brain off and talk to you about devil may cry <laughs> yes please do um, another so, another fan favorite yeah so the basic backstory of uh devil may cry is once upon a time there was a demon named sparta he was a warrior who woke up to justice is the actual uh translated line um, and he basically, he fights off the hordes of hell to save humanity. Um, and then he has a wife and together they, uh, they raise two twins, uh, Dante and Virgil. And basically the forces of hell, they start to rise up again. They kill Sparta off screen. It's never really elaborated on. And also Dante and Virgil's mother dies. Um, and so by Devil May Cry 3, Dante and Virgil are both in their late teens or early 20s, uh, they have grown apart, uh, they are living apart, and they have this uh, sibling rivalry. Uh, Dante kind of views it as play fighting, and Virgil does too, but uh, by the time of Devil May Cry 3, things are a little bit more serious. Dante has, like, he basically kills demons because it's something he's good at, and he has fun doing it, and he doesn't really think about any higher purpose behind it. Um, it's just kind of his angsty teenage way of like getting revenge in a small way without actually fighting the source of the problem virgil is focused on improving himself and becoming a stronger swordsman so that his nothing can ever be taken from him again it's kind of implied that he blames himself and dante for their mother's death because neither of them were strong enough to do anything about it so he's he's the villain because he is actively trying to open a gateway to hell uh, so that he may find more power and become stronger. Okay. And so what is interesting about Dante versus Virgil is that Dante lives very apathetically. He doesn't really have any investment in anything that's going on in the plot. And Virgil is the one controlling the plot. He is the source of the problem. Virgil is trying to get Dante to submit to him so that Virgil can become more powerful. And 
he also questions why Dante isn't doing the same thing. And it's only after Virgil defeats Dante in combat that Dante starts to care about getting better. And then later when they fight a second time, it ends in a tie, but a third party comes in to take advantage of both of them. And so now Dante wants to fight for the purpose of stopping this third party. And then by the third time, by the third time Dante okay. and Virgil fight, Virgil, you know, he is still pursuing more power, but Dante wants to stop Virgil because he has a moral compass now and he's like, this is wrong. And so Virgil is like, Virgil is this static relation to Dante. And in a way, like, while Virgil remains the same and he stays driven on this one goal, Dante grows as a character and you can kind of see how much more he matures past Virgil. So on a, they're they're almost using Virgil as the yes as like a yardstick uh, for Dante to put his Dante's character growth yes. in sort of in relief. Um, yeah, and then That's on top really of that, you, you also have Virgil's implied backstory, which is a bit more depth than you would you would have for like the other uh, Devil May Cry characters, Devil May Cry villains, I should say, who usually want more power because they want to rule the world or something. Virgil wants more power because he is trying to like he's it's his way of trying to erase a perceived mistake he made as a child. Interesting. So he's almost, so it's almost like the same kind of wanting to redo or fix the mistakes of the past that we see in, it, uh, with, with Ganondorf and Wind Waker. Yeah. Five kind of plays with really that motivation a little bit. I think part of the reason is because like a lot of the backstory in Devil May Cry, the games at least is kind of vague. Also like a lot happens between Devil May Cry three and five. <laughs> In fact, the entire series happens between Devil May Cry 3 and 5. Devil May Cry 3 is a prequel. <laughs> I think that would certainly count as a lot there. Virgil's always been one of my favorite video game villains, and it's one of the reasons why, despite people poing, uh, poking fun at Devil May Cry for being like this really cheap, shallow, action movie wannabe story, I think it does have some genuine pathos in there. Yeah, that's really cool. I don't have anything else to throw in here. I think, yeah, I think that's that we've sort of I think we sort of run the gamut. We talked about what makes some villains good. We talked about one thing just like don't, <laughs> don't do to your villains. Don't from villains. Be don't, like Liquid Snake. Yeah, don't. Um, but I hope that this has been fun for you. It was fun for us. This is an episode I've been wanting to do for a minute now and I had a really good time recording. So I hope you enjoyed listening and I hope that you'll continue to enjoy listening when we see you again next week. Uh, this has been Backstage Gaming. If you like what we're doing, if you like our show, please feel free to find us on wherever you're getting your podcast, be that iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, the Google Play Store, uh, really any given podcatcher. And leave us a rating. Leave us a review. Tell us what you think. Tell your friends what you think. Introduce us to your family members, <laughs> not in person, but our voices in this podcast format. Maybe they'll like it. Don't, we don't hope they'll like it. Don't show Tell people your that you think will like kid. it. I don't think our language is suitable for that. No, we 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 have the explicit tag on iTunes, so please don't share us with children, unless they're <laughs> cool children. Um, if your if your kid wears also, heelys, you can you they can listen to this podcast. Yeah, if if you've got heelys, you're, you're you win, you win. Um, Anyway, you can also find us at our website, bsgpod.com. Uh, we've got a contact form. We've got bios for me and Dylan. We've got links to other things going on. We've got a, a uh, all of our episodes there if you want to cut out the middleman and get, get us straight from the source. Yeah, check that out. And really do, like, all joking aside, 
the more that you, the people who already know about us and like us, tell other people about us, the more we'll be able to grow and the more we'll be able to keep making cool stuff. So please consider uh, throwing us out there to other people who you know who might enjoy our particular brand of weirdness. You should also check us out on social media. You can find us on Facebook, on Twitter. Our handle is at BSG underscore cast. And you can also look us up on YouTube. And if you like what we talk about or, you know, you just want to engage with us in any sort of way, please, I'm starving for your attention. You should use uh, the hashtag <laughs> BSG pod. Uh, also, huge, huge thanks to our friend Brennan French for the key art that he has provided us with. If you like his stuff, you should check him out at brennan-french.squarespace.com. That is B-R-E-N-N-E-N-French.squarespace.com. Uh, you can also check him out on Instagram at instagram.com slash brennanfrencharts. Oh, yes. Also, huge thank you to our friend BioQuery, the musician behind our theme song, Dot Sound Radio Volume 1 Instrumentality. It's great. He's great. He's an electronic music producer living out in L.A. He's got an EP out of his solo work called Post-Human Angst. You can find that on Spotify. He's also got an EP out that he produced featuring a bunch of hip-hop artists from around the country called Lynx Volume 1. And you can find all of that by going to Spotify and searching for BioQuery, B-I-O-Q-U-E-R-Y, or by going to SoundCloud.com slash BioQuery. And one more time, we do have a Patreon. That Patreon is the reason we're able to do this show without any uh, personal financial strain, which is incredible. Uh, you are paying for all of our web hosting. And if you like what we're doing and you're not a patron yet, head over to patreon.com slash bsgpod. Look at the rewards. Look at what you are willing to offer us and throw something our way. If you can't, that's totally understandable. We get it. We're poor <laughs> actors. We understand. That we understand the hustle. But if you want to show some support in that way, it's hugely appreciated. And the more money our Patreon attracts, the more we're able to put back into making this show just the absolute best show that it can be. That is all I've got. Dylan, um, do you have anything for I the good of the order? I don't have nothing. Don't got even a single thing. I'm going to go and think long and hard about whether or not to cut the sex noise I made in this episode. So while I'm doing that, you already know the answer, listener. Have a good rest of your day. Bye.